Like many teenagers, I, I turned 18 just a couple months into my senior year of high school. And I mean, I was in that awkward stage in life where, I mean, I was legally an adult. Every, every single one of us hits that point. Around 17 or 18 years old, where you know everything. You have this whole adulting thing figured out. You know how life works. And this was, this was only heightened in me by the fact that less than a year prior, my parents had bought a new house. And in that house, there was a basement apartment. It had its own entrance and exit. And my brother and I lived in that basement apartment. And so I was independent. I lived on my own. I had my own car. I had a job. I got myself up and I did all the school stuff. I was, you know, I didn't need anybody else. Forget the fact that my parents paid my rent. Forget the fact that my parents paid for my utilities and my food and my insurance. I was independent. I was an adult. And finally one day, I got in the mail that that adult rite of passage, that envelope that said, you are pre-approved. Oh man, I was so excited. For those of you who don't know, that, that's a credit card application. For those of you who have not experienced that yet. But I thought, why not? I'm an adult. Adults have credit cards. Adults have that responsibility. And so I filled out the application and I sent it in and I got back my first Capital One credit card. And I was excited. I was an adult and it was really convenient. This was back before debit cards were really a big thing. And so it was way more convenient. You know, normally I'd have to carry cash with me or I'd need to you know, carry my checkbook and, and write a check if I wanted to buy anything, but no. With a credit card, I could just swipe and be done. It was super convenient, and I used it out of convenience on many occasions. But I also used it when it was getting close to payday and I didn't quite have enough money. I would just use that to get me over the hump to the next paycheck. I was living the best life ever. I was completely independent. I was free to do anything, well, except drink. I wasn't 21 yet. But I was free until that fateful day came. Some of you are smiling because you already know where this is going. I stopped at Walmart because I was bored. I didn't have anything else to do. And I, I was browsing around and I decided, you know what, I'm going to buy a new phone. And I'm not talking cell phones. This wasn't cell phone time yet. This was like hang on the wall type phone. Um, it, the one that we had didn't have caller ID and all those bells and whistles. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to upgrade. This phone is like 20 bucks. I can afford that. I didn't have any cash. I didn't have my checkbook on me. I'll just put it on the credit card. And so I bring it up to the cash register. The guy rings me up. I swipe my card and something happened that had never happened before. It said declined, insufficient funds. And I didn't know what to do with that. I mean, surely I had enough money. I had a $1,000 limit. I, there is no way that I could have spent $1,000 already. I mean, right? I, I had no other way to pay, so I, I left the phone there, and I went home 
but I had with me a, a new piece of adulthood to contemplate. This was the beginning of a problem that would last for well over a decade. Throughout that process, I, I learned a very hard but very important lesson that, that age does not equal maturity. That even though I was legally old enough to take on that responsibility, I was not mature enough. I was not responsible enough to handle that credit card. I had the freedom. I had the liberty to spend as much as I wanted within that $1,000 limit, but that freedom carried with it responsibility. And we've been reading through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and we're talking, we've talked multiple times about how this is a letter of correction. There are lots of things that the church was doing wrong, and Paul's letting them know what they're doing wrong and what they need to do instead. He's kind of laying down the law if you will, saying, this is what you're doing and it's bad. So stop doing that and start doing this. And he's given them many, many, many rules. He's told them, do not divide the church over your earthly leaders. Do not tolerate sin within the church. Don't judge those who are outside the church. Let God do that. Don't take each other to court before unrighteous judges. You guys are fully capable of judging those things on your own. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't get drunk. And he gives all of these don'ts. He gives this big list of rules throughout the entire letter. But you may be surprised to find out Paul was not a guy that was super big on rules. Paul, if we, if we look at his life, he, if we look back in, in the book of Acts, Paul grew up as a Pharisee. You may remember hearing about them and their encounters with Jesus. The Pharisees were the religious and political leaders. They were the ones who made the rules. They were the ones who enforced the rules on everybody else. They were very big on following rules, and this is what Paul grew up with. He grew up listening to the best teachers, going to the best schools, learning how to be the best Pharisee that he could be. And that's who he was until he had an encounter with Jesus. And in that encounter with Jesus, he, he came to realize that life in Christ isn't about following a list of rules. That the salvation that God gives is a free gift from God. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. But it is given to God freely by his grace. And this was something that the early church kind of wrestled with, with getting their heads around it and understanding, because they all came from Jewish backgrounds. And they were very much, this is the list of rules, this is what you need to do. And in that culture, Paul was, was pushing this idea of, of freedom. And in Acts chapter 15, a lot of that kind of came to a head in what we refer to as the Jerusalem Council. There were this group of people, and they were saying, we are Jews, everybody who is, is going to follow God, everybody who's going to be a Christian, needs to be circumcised, and they need to follow all these rules that Moses gave us. And they made their case before the council, and Paul got up, and he said some words, and he made his case saying, no, Christ has set us free through his blood, he has paid the price, he has fulfilled the law, and we are not bound by that. And believe it or not, 
the leaders of the church agreed with Paul. They agreed that, that Christians were, were free from the Mosaic law, that they weren't bound by all those rituals and, and traditions. And this became very much a focal point of Paul's teaching. As he went around starting churches here and there, this was part of that, that message that he preached about, about the, as he described the Christ alone, the, the foolishness of God's wisdom. This was all bundled in that. And so every church that he was going to, this was part of it that you are free. You don't have to earn it. You can't, you can't earn it. You, you don't need to follow all of these lists of rules upon rules. Salvation is not dependent upon your adherence to a list of rules. He preached freedom in Christ, that the law has no power over us. And that's what he was telling the Galatian churches when he told them Christ has set us free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit to the bondage of slavery again. This was Paul's message. You may be wondering, if Paul's so big on freedom, if Paul's so big on, on not being bound by this list of rules, then why is he giving the church in Corinth so many rules? See, this message of freedom was the one he preached everywhere. And he preached it here in Corinth as well. In fact, the church in Corinth, they, they welcomed this message of freedom. They received it quite well, a little too well, maybe. There were a couple issues at play within that church, within that city, in that culture. First of all, they were Greek. This, this Greek-Corinthian culture, as we've said, they were very free with regards to the body. We talked about, you know, how their, their opinion was of sex and how they would do absolutely anything and, and nothing was taboo. We've talked about their sexual obsessions. But the root issue that where all of that stems from is their view of the relationship between the physical and the spiritual. See, they, they viewed, Greeks had this idea we give them a lot of flack for not being very religious. We look at the Greek culture and we, we see them as, as like pagan and, and not really being of the things of God. The fact of the matter is they were very religious people. They had many different gods and they had many different religious beliefs. Our view that they were anti-religious, that perception comes from their actions. We view their actions and say those are immoral, therefore they were unreligious or, or anti-religion. But their actions, whether you deem them right or whether you deem them wrong, their actions were very much within their views of religion and spirituality. You see, they viewed the separation between the spirit and the physical and the superiority of the spiritual realm over the physical. Anything physical, anything made of matter, whether it's a, a dog or an apple, a, a rock, your body, anything that is made of matter, in their view, was inherently evil. And anything spiritual was inherently good. We as humans kind of walk this line. We, we have this, this dual aspect of, of having both the spiritual and the physical. And we're torn between these two realms. 
And how this manifested in people's lives varied a little bit. One of the ways that they reconciled this, this physical versus spiritual is some saw, well, the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. Therefore, we need to subject the physical to the spiritual. We need to tame our bodies as you will. And so they would deprive their bodies of food. They would mutilate their bodies to, to bring it in line, to, to purify it. They would sleep on stones to, to, to purify the sinfulness of their physical bodies. But other people didn't view it quite like that. They said that the spiritual and the physical are distinct. They are completely separate. And the physical, the body, being irredeemable, and the, the spirit being incorruptible, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what you did with the body since it was already bad. It couldn't be made any worse and it wasn't going to corrupt the spirit. So you might as well do what you want. This was the, the primary view of many of the Greeks and therefore many of those in Corinth. Add to that Paul's teaching of Christian freedom. And you get this, this mindset, the, the Greek mindset is telling them, well, the body's sinful anyway, so I may as well just let it indulge itself and do all of those physical things and just keep my spirit pure. And then you have the Christian mindset saying, well, Christ's sacrifice has freed me from the law and my sins are forgiven, so it doesn't matter what I do because Jesus has already paid the price. And therefore, we get into this issue that we've seen thus far in Corinth. And this is where Paul starts to address them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, I have the freedom to do anything, but not everything is helpful. I have the freedom to do anything, but I won't be controlled by anything. Now this, this phrase that Paul uses, I have the freedom to do anything, he repeats it twice here. Most likely, it was a common saying, a, a slogan, you know, that, a, a mantra that, that people would live by. I have the freedom to do anything. And so Paul is, is using their words, using their ideas, and, and incorporating that and, and countering it these two times. But notice what Paul doesn't do. Paul does not argue against that premise. Paul does not say, oh, no, 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 you don't have the freedom to do anything. If anything, he's telling them, yes, you have the freedom to do anything, but not everything's going to be helpful. Yes, you have the freedom to do anything, but not everything is going to be good for you. We spoke a few weeks ago about America and how in America we have certain freedoms. We have certain rights. I have the right to say what I want. I have the right to live my life how I want. I have the right to a, a fair trial or, or the right to, to bear arms. I have my rights and my freedoms, but my rights and my freedoms have their limits. When they interact with your rights and your freedoms, then there has to be a, a stopping point. And Paul's saying that, yes, you have the right to do anything. Yes, you have the, the freedom to do as you please, but just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. He's telling them, I have the right, I have the freedom to do anything, 
but, and he gives a few limits to this liberty. You have the freedom to do anything except that which is harmful to yourself and that which is harmful to others. And Paul's going to get into this more. And we're, we're just kind of scraping the, the surface here. But Paul's going to go a lot deeper in chapter 8. But as we look at this, you're free to do anything except that which harms yourself or harms others. And if we look back just a couple verses to what Paul was talking about in verses 9 and 10, where he gives that, that list of, of unrighteous behaviors. As we look over that list, each and every one of those fall in this category of harming yourself or harming others. And we may not understand how it all works. We may not see in the beginning how what we're doing is hurting ourselves or other people's. It may or may not be obvious how those things are detrimental. But each and every one of those sins listed will hurt you or someone else. And so Paul is saying, you have the freedom to do anything, but don't do these things. You have the freedom to do them, but don't hurt other people. But then he also says, you have the freedom to do anything, but I won't be controlled by anything. And again, he's going to talk about this more in chapter 8. Even if you're doing something that doesn't hurt you, <clears throat> if you're doing something that doesn't hurt anybody else, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or that it's okay. I've heard, this is hearsay, so take the, the factual accuracy of this as you will. I have not dug deep into researching it, but I have heard that there is a highway in Germany called the Autobahn. Maybe you guys have heard about it. When I was in, in high school and, and college, I had friends who were really big car buffs. And they would always talk about how they wanted to, to go to Germany and drive on the Autobahn because on the Autobahn, from what I understand, there is no speed limit. You can drive as fast as you want on that road. And you are not going to get a ticket for driving too fast. But to say that is a little disingenuous, not quite factually accurate. Because while there is no legal speed limit, that does not mean that it's impossible to get a speeding ticket. Again, from what I understand, from, from what I've heard, there is a stipulation. You can drive as fast as you want as long as you can control your vehicle, as long as you're not being reckless and endangering other people. And so if you are driving 100 miles an hour down that road, you're not necessarily going to be stopped. But if you can't handle going 100 miles per hour down that road, then yes, an officer will stop you and yes, will give you a ticket for speeding. And that's what Paul is saying here. You have the freedom, you have the liberty to do all that you want as long as you're not hurting yourself and you're not hurting others. You have the freedom to do as you wish except if you can't control it. Except if, if that begins to control you and the, the most clear example of this is drugs. Now, we have a lot of drugs that are illegal, that you cannot take or you cannot get your hands on. We have many more that are, are strictly regulated. 
that, yes, you can have it, but we're only going to give you so much. But there are others that are not illegal, they are not regulated, that you can freely get your hands on that are just as addictive. Nicotine and caffeine are the first two that come to mind. These are, are substances, they're, they're chemicals that, that you take into your body by your own free will. You decide, I'm going to take this. And, and you do so freely, but as you take it, it gets to the point where your body becomes dependent, where it's no longer a choice. Your, your, your body craves it. Your body needs it. And you can choose to stop maybe, but it's not going to be easy. Alcohol is another one. Many people will, they've had a hard day. And so they just, you know, take a drink to kind of take the edge off of the day. Or maybe they're having a, a hard time in life and, and they, they cope by escaping with alcohol. But eventually that high gets the better of them. That, that, that need to, to experience that high takes control. And they, became, they become consumed, they become controlled by this thing that they once controlled. And it's not just consumables. It's not just the things that you put into your body that can do this. Sex is, is highly addictive. When you engage in those activities, chemicals are released in your body and in your brain that give you a euphoric high. And once people experience that, they want to experience it again. This is why we have uh, increased examples of, of promiscuity. People sleeping around with whoever they want to or, or self-pleasure in order to satisfy those desires. This is why pornography has skyrocketed recently. Because there is this addictive high that once you experience, you want to experience it again and it begins to control you. Because maybe you know it's not good. Maybe you know it's going to tear your marriage apart. Maybe you know that... that your life is, is not going to work well with that. But once you've experienced that high and it begins to take control of your life, then you have to satisfy it. Whether you want to or not, whether you know how detrimental, how it's going to tear your life apart, you're compelled. It, it controls you. And if we look at that list in verses 9 and 10, we see this over and over again. You have freedom in Christ, and you exercise that freedom, doing things that are not hurting anybody else. But then those things begin to control you. They begin to dictate your actions rather than being controlled by you. Just because something, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. I had the freedom to charge $1,000 on a credit card. That doesn't mean that it was good for me to do it. But Paul continues on in the same line of thinking in verse 13. Saying food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And yet God will do away with both. The body isn't for sexual immorality but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. 
Again, this was probably a, a common saying that Paul is addressing, just like in the last verse. The food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. The body needs these things, so just do it. It, it goes back to this idea of, of the spirit being good and the body being bad. Just do what the body wants. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect the spirit. If I'm hungry, well, then I eat. It just makes logical sense. So why not do the same thing with my other desires? If my body desires sexual pleasure, then why not just go ahead and fulfill that physical need? And Paul says, it's, but it's different. While well, society would say that, that the sexual urges are no different than any other urges of the body, is no different than hunger, Paul gives them correction and says, no, no, no. Hunger and sex are very different things. If you are hungry, by all means, eat. If you are thirsty, then yes, you should get something to drink. If you are tired, then you need to rest your body. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. They go together. You just satisfy those desires. Paul says both the food and the stomach, they're going to pass away. They will be gone. But sexual sins are different. We have a very similar view in modern society in regard to sex. That sex is a physical act. There's nothing beyond just the physical action, and so it's no big deal. We're just satisfying a physical desire. But unlike eating, unlike drinking, unlike sleeping, sex goes beyond the physical. Sex touches the, the emotional and, and the spiritual aspects of our being, and we can deny it. We can say, no, you are wrong. It's purely physical. There's nothing outside of the physical, and we can discount any claims to the contrary. But we inherently know that it's true. We know that there's a difference between sexual acts and physical acts. That's why we know that there is a difference between being raped and being physically assaulted. We know that rape is so much worse than a physical assault. We know that sexual abuse of children is worse than physical abuse of children. I'm not saying that one is okay. They are both wrong. They are both bad. But if we had to rank them and say which one was worse, everybody would say that the sexual act was worse. Because we are more than just our physical beings. We are spiritual Paul goes on saying, God has raised the Lord and will raise us through his power. Don't you know that your bodies are parts of Christ? So then should I take parts of Christ and make them a part of someone who's sleeping around? No way. Don't you know that anyone who is joined to someone who is sleeping around is one body with that person? The scripture says the two will become one flesh. The one who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Avoid sexual immorality. Every sin that a person can do is committed outside the body, except those who engage in sexual immorality commit sin against their own bodies. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourself? You have been bought and paid for. So honor God with your body. You are so much more than your physical body. You are more than, than the atoms and the molecules that are bouncing around inside of you. You have a soul, you have a spirit, and sexual acts engage not just the physical, but they touch the spiritual world too. You have freedom in Christ. But with great power comes great responsibility. You have the freedom to do anything. But your liberty is limited when it comes to the corruption of your body and of your soul. Because your body is one with Christ. And your spirit has been redeemed by him. It has been bought and paid for by him. You don't belong to you. You have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And Christ gives you freedom in that. He liberates you. You may look at that list and say, freedom with such limitations. That's not really freedom. But I would have to disagree. When I was 18 years old, I had the freedom and I signed up for a credit card that I could not afford. And in so doing, I enslaved myself to a financial institution. I gave them control. I gave them authority over me. I had the freedom to spend as much as I wanted, up to $1,000. But freedom didn't come from being able to buy whatever I wanted. That freedom enslaved me put me in bondage for decades. Now today, I could sign up for a credit card. I still get those pre-approval letters in the mail. And I could, I could get any number of credit cards with limits more than $1,000, and I could indulge myself. I could spend all that money on every material desire that I want. I could pay for services that I wanted. I could have everything and indulge myself. Just because I have the freedom to do so doesn't mean that it's beneficial. It's not freedom to sell yourself into slavery. We have been given freedom in Christ. Freedom is not being able to sign up for a credit card that you can afford, can't afford. Freedom is not indulging in, in every carnal desire that you may have. Freedom is not being able to do everything. Now, freedom, freedom is not being tied down or enslaved by anything. Freedom is being empowered to avoid such traps, being able to avoid falling into those traps of slavery. Freedom is being set free from the debt that you accrued because of all that freedom. And you have freedom, true freedom, liberty in Christ. 
And you have the freedom to sell yourself into slavery once again. You have the freedom to indulge the sinful thoughts and the sinful desires. You have the freedom to tear your soul apart, to harm others, to harm yourself, to corrupt your body and your soul. That is your choice to make. But freedom in Christ, Christian liberty, is more than that. It is the freedom to be who God has created us to be, to not be tied down, to not be enslaved by the, the sinful debts that we, we brought upon ourselves that we thought were what we really wanted. Because Christ has paid the price. Christ has redeemed your life so that you can be set free. That's Christian liberty. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. Christian liberty is not about what you are free to do. Rather, it's about what you have been set free from. And that's the life that Christ has given to those who repent and confess him as Lord and Savior. Heavenly Father, you have given us such freedom. God, you have set us free from what we thought we wanted. From all those things that we thought were going to be good. But ended up enslaving us. God, you have wiped it all away. You have set us free. God, may we acknowledge what you've done. May we see the freedom that we have. The liberty that we have in you. That we're not tied down to a list of rules. But just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. Just because it's possible doesn't mean it's beneficial. So God, I pray that you help us to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to, to learn what it means to be free in you. God, open our eyes to see what is before us and open our eyes even wider to see what is behind us that we have been set free from. Go with us this week, God. Fill our lives with your glory and your spirit. In your holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys and we'll see you next week.